morning, everybody. Come on, come on. we're good. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a few things happening just to kind of keep you in the loop. I sent out an email, so if you saw it, you'd have, you'd have seen what I sent out. But especially for people that are watching at home or watching this video after the fact, um, we are doing some work in the background. Carl and Ron and some others are, are doing some work to make sure we get all our video stuff upgraded so that our live streams uh, are the best quality they can be and so that the videos up, uh, uploaded online are better quality than they've been. And so that stuff is coming. Um, but as part of that, there's some like mild cosmetic changes are going to be taking place. Um, so to try and get everything ready for the live stream to be better online, we're going to be doing a little bit of painting just back here to try and get the backdrop right for the camera. So it's coming. We'll send out some more information with uh, what that might look like, a couple of pictures to help you get your head around it a little bit. So that's coming. Just some little changes just so that the online experience can be more enjoyable for people at home. Um, so that's that. Um, other thing, just, just for fun and just for free. You know, this week I was... Uh, or was it last week? I was sitting at home with Skye, and uh, she came up asking for something. Daddy, I want whatever. I can't even remember what she was asking me for. And I, so I picked her up, and she just like, I want a whatever. I don't remember. And, she, and I went, Skye, you're missing a very important word. What word are you missing? And she went, baby Jesus? <laughs> 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 no, please. <laughs> but but she, she, she understands what's important. That's the main thing. So we're doing a good job. We're winning. <laughs> so we are in this season of Advent. So what's Advent about? It's about looking back on the first coming of Jesus to cultivate in us anticipation and hope for the second coming of Jesus. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when you look at the Advent themes, hope, peace, joy, love, they are uh, themes that just seem so applicable to the world that we're living in right now. They're things that we need uh, in order to be the light that, that Jesus is calling us to be in the world. So this morning we're going to look at joy, but, but one of the things that, that I've been reflecting on and praying about with each of these traits is hope, peace, joy, love are all traits that as believers we're supposed to carry regardless of the circumstances we're in. So it doesn't matter if life is good, life is bad, if things are easy, if things are hard, if things are abundant, or if things are tight, we're supposed to be people marked by hope, peace, joy, and love. So these are things that, that are supposed to transcend circumstances because they find their source and fulfillment in our intimacy with him. Um, so we're going to look at, at the theme of joy this morning. And uh, as we go there, I want to start by just rooting ourselves back in the Christmas story. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 2 all the way down to verse 20. And just remind ourselves of this story. It's so familiar, um, but it's so pivotal to our faith. So this is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first sentence that took place, the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. I want to give just a little bit of context here to, to remind us or, or give us some, maybe for some of us, some, some new information around the text. But we're just going to spend a little bit of time here and then we're going to spend the bulk of the time just looking at joy. What is joy? How do we cultivate joy? What gets in the way of us being people marked with joy? So a couple of things to think through. Um, what, what often people don't realize when it comes to the Gospels is the Gospel writers were writing their Gospels with specific audiences and purposes in mind. So each gospel was taking what they knew of the life and teaching of Jesus, what resources that they had, what they'd witnessed um, or heard from someone who'd witnessed it. And they took all of that information and they were crafting their gospel to communicate a certain truth to a certain group of people. So with each gospel that you read, uh, we have to be able to read that gospel through that lens that the original author was using as they were writing. So, um, a couple of months ago now, I was preaching on the Great Commission. We're talking about Matthew's gospel. And I was saying, you know, Matthew's gospel is a gospel that is written to Jewish people. So Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience uh, to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And so all through his gospel, he's looking back on Old Testament prophecy and showing their fulfillment, showing Jesus' connection to Abraham and David, showing Jesus the miracles that he performed that resembled Old Testament prophets, all the way through to prove to them and show to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And when it comes to Luke, Luke has a, a different perspective that he's bringing to, to his gospel. And Luke is writing, in, in many ways, to a predominantly Gentile audience, and he's writing to help or maybe a mixed audience but but he's writing to help them see that Jesus is the savior of all of humanity so Jesus uh, Luke's emphasis is really the universality of the gospel like it's for every person no matter uh, their their male or female Jew or Gentile uh, high class low caste class um, it, it's for everyone and that's a lot of what, what um, Luke is doing so with his unique parts of the gospel he's bringing in each story and each little sentence he pulls in is trying to articulate that this is a message that is for everybody um, and you, you see that in this story. So here we have, um, it begins telling us about the census that's taken place. He wants us to know that in, in this 
element that Joseph and Mary are of the line of David. So he's rooting it in the Old Testament. He's showing us that this is this promised person that they've been longing for. But as the story goes on, he starts to kind of change gear a little bit. And like Matthew, it focuses on these wise men, these rulers, these intellectual wealthy people that come to visit Jesus. But Luke takes a different perspective and he begins to look at the shepherds and, and who they were and their significance in this story and what they represent for us and for the world in terms of the gospel. So I have a love-hate relationship with contextual information because a lot of the time we're, we're making our best educated guesses from the material that are out there. But one of the things that gets said all the time about, um, about shepherds is that shepherds were essentially criminals, that they're these despised people out in the field that couldn't be trusted. And, and, and there's some interesting things there about why then Jesus would appear to those people. But I think shepherds get a bit of a bad stick. A bad rap. I think I think we're we're a little mean to the shepherds. And there's a there's a couple of things that make me think this. So 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 first of all, the the concept of shepherds being untrustworthy and thieves and a little criminal comes from later rabbinic writing that speaks negatively about shepherds. Um, I think there may be some classism in in the things that are being written. So so that's part of it. Um, secondly, when you look through the New Testament. And you look at the images that both Jesus and the church use to describe leaders of God's people, they use shepherd imagery. So I have a hard time thinking you would take kind of this negative thing from your community and make it the height of who we're supposed to be as believers. So, so I think we've maybe got, given them a little bit of a bad rap. Um, I think there, there is some truth in it. But, but the other part of it is this. At the end of the day, who were the shepherds? They were working class peasants. Um, and, and so when I, when I go to India and, and I, I'm, I'm walking around and I'm seeing the shepherds doing their job, some rich person owns their flock and that person is sitting at home nice and comfortable doing their thing and they've hired these people to come and do the, the, the horrible job of just walking the sheep around, making sure they're fed. So this is a low income, long days job. And, and so at this part of the story, you have these people, they're, they're, they're blue collar workers, they're working hard. In this instance, these are the night shift workers. So they're out in the cold at night watching over someone else's flock to, to take care of it. Um, and this, this, this part of the story is set in the dark with these poor people um, who are working hard all night long. And so I think this is a beautiful thing because if you think of the savior of the world coming to present himself, we, we kind of expect the, the three wise men to be the ones that appear and see Jesus. We kind of expect that these extravagant gifts to be the thing that would be stored on a king. You kind of expect a king to be born in a palace surrounded by nobility. So there's this beautiful thing happens in the story as the savior of the world comes and empties himself, makes himself nothing. He's born this day. And the first people that get to witness his birth are these common, low-income, night-shift workers that are working hard to make a living. And those are the people that then go on to be the first witnesses um, of this Savior that is to come. Um, and, and so it's this, this just the, the realization in here, you know, it's for everybody. The, the, the lowest menial worker who's working night shift trying to provide for his family is just as worthy a bearer of the gospel as the highest trained scholar uh, on the planet. And so I think it's just this beautiful image of who it is that Jesus has come for and what he's doing. Um, the other thing that's been set up here is they're out at night and it's dark. And so I talked a couple of weeks ago, I was saying with, with Mary, we've got this message of hope that 
spoken to Mary in this bleak, dark circumstance. Teen pregnancy, out of wedlock conception, all of the issues that surround that, and into that darkness comes the light of hope. And then a similar thing being set up here, they're out at night, they're in the dark, uh, and this message, this light of joy gets spoken into the situation, because this is what God does. He takes these attributes, and they shine the brightest in the darkness um, as, as they reveal who he is. So you get this moment. So shepherds are in the, the fields. It's dark. It's cold. It's smelly. They're struggling to stay awake, I'm sure. And all of a sudden, there's this bright shining light, and this angel appears to them. So you just, we have to put this in context, like for us, bring it, bring it to today, because we live in the age of electricity and light bulbs. So the thought of being out in the dark and a big light coming on, like lots of houses have automatic lights. You walk up, the big light comes on, and it's like, oh, there's a big light. Remember, we're going back thousands of years where there's no electricity and there's no lights. So these guys are in the field and there's no lights. If there's a light, there's a little fire that they've put there to try and keep themselves warm and keep the, the wolves away. Um, so when they have a giant floodlight appearing in the middle of the darkness, that would probably be akin for us, like a UFO experience. You know, the big spaceship appears and the giant light is just like, vroom. It's a little bit like, I think I'd be a little bit more like, what's happening? So you're all acting like it's happened before. So uh, no, I'm not so sure. <laughs> so so this, is, this is a terrifying moment where the darkness is lit up with this figure and they know their, their biblical history. Like a lot of times when angels appear, it's not a good thing. He's coming to strike people down. He's got a bad message for people. Sometimes it's positive. But why would an angel appear to these hardworking people in a field unless it was something bad? So they're filled with fear. And then you've got this, this moment in Luke, Luke 10. When the angels bring this message, do not be afraid. Like, this is not something to fear. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Because today in this town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. I bring you good news of great joy to all people. I find myself sitting on this verse a lot, not just through Advent. I don't feel like in the Western world, the church is known for having a message that is good news that brings great joy. I don't think the people round about us listen to the way we talk and be like, man, this is good news, and I'm filled with joy hearing the message that you're bringing. And actually, I don't think this is the predominant way we function with this message inside the church. We talk about the gospel a lot of the time and, and what God requires of us as believers with like fear and, and burden. Like, oh, I've, I've got to do a better job of sharing the gospel with my neighbors. Oh, I'm sinning. I've got to get my life sorted out. Oh, I fall so far short of what God's called me to do. I don't hear God clearly enough. I don't know what it is that he's calling me to do. And we kind of live our faith in this sort of heavy place. And it's like, this is a message that's supposed to be good news that brings great joy to all people. So if you're one of those people, when you look at your faith or when other people are interacting with your faith and, 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 and you're looking at it going, this doesn't feel like good news. This doesn't feel like it's, it's inspiring great joy. Well, the Bible's really clear. It's a message of good news that brings great joy. So if that is not your experience, the version of the gospel that you're trying to live is not the right gospel. Because the gospel that we're called to be a part of is good news for us. And it inspires great joy in us and in the world as they understand that the Savior has come. So 
These guys, they get this message, they run off, they're excited, they go see Mary and Joseph and the baby, and then all of a sudden, this amazing declaration, they're running around, they're praising, and they're sharing with everybody this amazing message um, of what they've heard and what they've seen, like God breaks into their life and inspires them with a joy that is uncontainable. Um, there is a, a, a rabbinic document that, that around the time of Jesus or slightly after the time of Jesus that talks about, and it's partly where we get this negative connotation of shepherds, talks about how shepherds were untrustworthy. And so if you were bringing a law case against someone else, a shepherd wasn't qualified to be a witness because they were so untrustworthy. Like I say, I think there's some classism in the way that was communicated um, back then. But, but if that was true, isn't it just such a beautiful thing that these people that society said were so untrustworthy they couldn't bear witness in a court case are the first people that Jesus or God calls to bear witness to the fact that his son was here. What an amazing image of redemption in this story. So that's us rerouted in the story, a couple of little fun tidbits just to, to get us think. But I want to spend the rest of the time just thinking about this good news that brings great joy. So what is joy? Where does it come from? How do we cultivate it? What gets in the way of it? And how can we as a church grow to be people who are marked by joy in this season and beyond? Um, so, so first of all, joy is not determined by our circumstances. Um, it's an attitude that we adopt because of the hope that we have. Joy is not determined by our circumstances. It's an attitude that we adopt or we choose because of the hope that we have. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in all of the things going on in life. And this season, it just feels like there's more than normal. Um, but there are all these issues going on in our life, and it's so easy to get despairing and discouraged. But the joy that we are promised and encouraged and, and at many times commanded to walk in shouldn't depend on the things that you're facing in life. It's a decision we make. We are called to choose joy. Um, when I worked at Grace Chapel the first time around, there was a, a gal on staff, um, Janelle Furman. So John and Janelle Furman, John actually moved up. He's now the lead pastor. I think it's Beaverton Christian. Um, he, great, great couple. But Janelle had this phrase that she would always say. She'd look at people and she'd just say, choose joy. Like, this is hard. You can choose to be despairing or you can choose joy. That person is, is causing you trouble. You can choose to hate them or you can choose joy. And so she was always exhorting us, choose joy. Um, and I think that's a good uh, encouragement as we walk in this season. Are you a person that's given into despair or are you choosing joy? I want to look at a, a few things different scripture writers say that are encouraging or modeling them in this process of choosing joy. So first one in James, very familiar um, passage, says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And it goes on to say that the perseverance uh, matures us so that we're not lacking anything. But, but what's James saying? He's saying, choose joy. When things are hard, know that there is something else going on in the background, that that hardship has a refining purpose, and in the middle of it, choose joy. Um, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, um, depending on what country you're from, uh, he, he is writing, this document's been written down, these prophecies and these declarations, and in the middle of it, he's reflecting on all the horrible things that are happening in Israel at the time, and he's, he's lamenting. 
Um, this is a good season to learn how to lament. Look what he says. Though the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, so though my life has fallen apart and I'm impoverished because nothing is working the way it's supposed to, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. When life feels like it's falling apart, it's okay to state all the things that are going wrong, but we need the yet. This is choosing joy. Yet I will praise the Lord. And this is a great uh, like homework exercise just for your own devotional experience is write a lament. Sit down and write, though there's a pandemic in the world, though I hate having to wear a mask, though my, like, I don't have any money because I lost my job, though I have family members that are ill, though we can't find a house yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will praise him because he's good. And that's the process of the man honestly sharing with God the struggles in her life, yet choosing joy in the middle of it. Um, Hebrews 13, 15, this doesn't mention joy, but it's, but it's applicable. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. I love this concept, a sacrifice of praise. What does it mean to offer a sacrifice of praise? You know, a sacrifice is something that costs us, that we do in order to honor God. We make costly sacrifices. We give of ourselves for him and for other people. A sacrifice of praise is when life is hard and you feel hopeless and no ounce of your body wants to sing praise, that you make the hard sacrifice to declare praise anyway. You're making a sacrifice of declaring his goodness even when you don't feel like it. That expression of joy and praise that overflows in the middle of a hardship. Joy is a, is a, a special word for our family. Um, our daughter uh, is called Ella Joy. Uh, we gave her that middle name because, I mean, I, I was rereading my old blog the last couple of days, just r- reflecting on some things. But nine years ago, this time nine years ago, I was going through chemotherapy. So uh, oh, uh, Halloween 2011, uh, I'd found a lump, I'd gone to the hospital, and they told me I had cancer. Um, and so it was a miserable day <laughs> uh, and uh, journaling and, and trying to trust God. I sat on a stretcher in a corridor of a hospital for six hours because they didn't have a room to put me in. And there was a line of us around the hospital. There were like hundreds of beds. It was the busiest day of the year. Don't know why Halloween's an accident-prone day, but it was. Um, but, but anyway, so we start chemo um, or, yeah, no. So I get diagnosed. They say, we want to operate tomorrow. And so I was like, well, that's quick. So they kept me in overnight. And then they were like, oh, we can't do it tomorrow. We'll do it in a few days' time. So um, November 4th, I think it was. It was 3rd or 4th, we went and had surgery. And then they're like, you're going to have to start chemotherapy. And so, of course, the most wonderful day of the year to start chemotherapy is Thanksgiving, November 24th. was when I went into hospital. Monica went and did Thanksgiving dinner with her friends and, and coworkers. And I went to hospital and set up in my room to begin my four days of intensive chemo. Um, and in this process, they're talking to us and they're saying, um, are, you, are you guys planning to have kids? And I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of the... Pl- our thought process for sure and they're like well you do realize chemotherapy can leave you infertile and so have you talked through that and and let's talk about what that might look like and uh, and and so that started some conversations with monica and i about okay what do we do um 
<laughs> so I have my surgery, and there's a two-week recovery time, and then I have my, uh, my treatment starting on November 25th, uh, 24th. So there was a five-day window between surgery, recovery, and chemotherapy starting. And Monica and I looked at each other and we're like, do we just try and have a baby? Like, so we tried hard for five days, uh, <laughs> which was a really fun time. Um, <laughs> joy in the middle of our sorrow. But I just remember, like, I, I starting chemo after that, being miserable, like taking pregnancy tests that were negative, going, oh, we're, 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 not, we're not pregnant. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Monica feeling ill and, and finding out she was pregnant. There was a scary moment about nine weeks where she started bleeding. We rushed into the hospital. We thought she was losing the baby. And then they were like, no, baby's fine. And you're actually 10 weeks pregnant because they calculated different from what we did. We're like, there was definitely five days. It's the only time it could have happened. Um, they're like, no, you're actually 10 weeks pregnant. You can tell everybody. But we're like, woo. So then we go into hospital and, uh, and I'm in having my treatment. And I'm like, we've just found out we're pregnant. And the nurse just looks at me horrified. And she's like, oh my goodness, like, uh, this is, that's not good. Like, you can't get pregnant on chemo. Like, it's really dangerous for the baby. It's really dangerous for your wife. Like, it could leave her infertile. And we're like, no, it definitely happened in a five-day window. We know this. Um, but it meant that through this season, as we, three months of chemotherapy and, and all of the horrible stuff that went with that, we had this beautiful little moment in the middle of it of joy. And all the way through, as, as I'm feeling miserable, um, Monica was also feeling miserable, which was fun to do together. <laughs> okay, I didn't say this first service, but it's kind of fun. So with testicular cancer, one of the, the, the main type of testicular cancer, the easiest way to test it is you take a pregnancy test, and it produces beta-HCG, which is the same hormone that they test for for pregnancy. So physiologically, Monica and I were pregnant at the same time. We, wish, we, we debated getting two pregnancy tests and doing it together and then being like, we're both pregnant. And we didn't, and we regret that since. But, but all that to say, this horrible season of, of cancer and just Ella um, being this, this symbol, much like Jesus, this symbol for us of the promise of God, the joy and the hope that we had in the middle of it. And then, of course, she was born, and you all know her, and she's awesome, and she still fills us with joy. Um, just a, a fun little story in here of, of, of choosing joy in the middle of hardship and those little moments that God gives us, these gifts that help us to remember the joy that we're supposed to have. So back to, back to content. <laughs> so there's this phrase that I hear people say all the time and it kind of bugs me. Blah, 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 steals my joy. Like, I don't like that person, they steal my joy, or I hate going to this thing, it just steals my joy. And I'm like, the reason I hate it, joy cannot be stolen, but you can give it away. Because joy's a choice. Joy cannot be stolen, but you can give it away. And, and I think we often are guilty of giving away our joy. Someone annoys us, we can choose to have joy in the middle of it, or we can choose to allow them to dictate what our emotional experience is going to be, and then we give them our joy, and now they're dictating uh, how we feel in the moment. Joy cannot be stolen, but it can be given away. Are you giving away your joy to something in this world that is stopping you from being able to experience what God has for you? Um, the side note to this, I, I just think this is really important to say, 
there are situations where joy is very, very difficult. So if you have clinical depression, it is a good example. Clinical depression is a chemical imbalance in your system that means your body is not producing the right chemicals for you to be able to experience some of the positive emotions that you're supposed to experience. And so if someone is dealing with, chemi- if someone is dealing with clinical depression, joy is something that eludes them. Now, if that's your experience, my encouragement, go see your doctor. Um, we have been gifted with amazing medicine that can help us get our bodies back to normal so that we can then work on the things that need to be worked on uh, so that we can walk forward in a healthier place. And some people will stay on that medication for the rest of their lives. Many people can eventually uh, come off of that medication. There is no shame in using the medicine that's out there to help us function healthily in the world. So, so there are many people that feel guilt around that issue. Um, but if, if you're dealing with clinical depression, you can't just choose joy. You need help. You need medicine. You need community around you to be able to help you get to that place. And, and so we want to encourage you in that. Um, the other thing that, that can, can steal joy significantly is, or, or interfere with our joy significantly is demonic oppression. So there are dark forces in this world that come against us as believers. And so sometimes it's a chemical thing. Sometimes it's a spiritual thing. Um, and, and there may be dark forces in your life that are stealing your joy. Now, that's a different set of solutions to that. There's some prayer and some ministry that's required. Um, and, and when you're talking in the realm of demonic forces involved in things, then there's a question that comes prior to that is, what are the things in your life that are there that are allowing those things to have access to you? Because we've been rescued from darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. They have no authority over us, just the authority that we give them. We've talked about this before. So they only have the authority that we give to them. And so quite often, if there's demonic issues in our life, that means that there are areas in our life where there's brokenness or sin that is allowing them some kind of access to us. And so we need to do some work together as we pray and heal um, and counsel to help lead you to, to a place of greater health. So those are, joy can't be stolen, but it can be given away, though there are a couple of uh, unusual circumstances which we have to take seriously if we want to walk um, in, in our faith and in joy. So I just want to make sure I mention those. So what produces joy? If we want to grow in joy, where do we find joy? So I'm going to hit seven things in scripture that describe where joy comes from. So let's look at these. The first one, joy is found in God's word. This is one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 19. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. This beautiful description of God's law, God's word, and its ability to transform us. If you're sitting here and you're like, man, I sure would love my my soul refreshed. I would sure love wisdom. I would love my heart to be full of joy. I would love my inner man to be enlightened. Then steep yourself in the word of God because he wants to give these things to you. It's a beautiful gift that comes from the word is joy as you encounter God there. Number two is prayer. You know, that's why we've been talking about this. It's key to everything that we do. Look at John 16. John writes, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
Now is, is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will be able to take away your joy. No one can take it away. You can give it away. No one can take it away. And that day you will no longer ask me for anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. There are things that God wants to do and give in your life to increase your joy, and you don't have them because you're not asking for them. So he's saying, ask me for the things that I'm putting on your heart so that I can give them and your joy will be complete. And one of the key things to ask for if, if, if you're looking for joy is joy. <laughs> give me joy, and he will pour out joy into your life. So God's word, prayer. Number three, uh, obedience. Are we walking in God's ways? John 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So walking in his ways, God has shown us, he's given us an amazing guidebook that helps us understand how to live according to his will. When we're in line with that will, it results in joy. When we're out of step with what he requires of us, we don't experience the joy that we're looking for. Um, sin and brokenness gets in the way of our joy. Um, it's amazing. In this, he's talking about keep my commands then you're going to experience my joy in you. But what's the command that he's given in the context? My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So it, like, part of it is obeying his will in general. Part of it is this command to love one another. Um, one of the biggest ways that we get to experience joy is through one another, through relationship, through being known, through being encouraged, through having someone speak God's truth into your life. Yeah, you know, I don't know, like, other than things like a baby being born, like, that's an amazing joy moment as you hold Ella for the first time. But, but I think one of the other places, where it's, I, it's just one of those joy-filled moments. Anytime you buy someone a gift that you just know they're going to love, and then you give it to them, and you get to watch the moment they open it. You know, it's just that joyous moment of like, ah, oh, I'm so glad that I was able to give them something that really blesses them. God intends for our primary source of joy to be him, but the way he's designed the world is that the primary instruments of that joy being bestowed, or any gift, grace, truth, the primary means he uses to bestow that is through one another. So we get to be instruments of joy into one another's life. So as we obey him and as we love one another, we get to increase the joy that we experience together. Um, number four is celebration. Now, this church, I know you're great for your potlucks, so you get the need to celebrate. This is important. But I think lots of the church are just too boring and too serious. And the world's looking at it as like, why would it ever go there? It's like so dull. But we're called to be people of celebration. It's like where we get joy. If you jump back to Deuteronomy. Like, you know, you read the law, and when you read it in our language, it's translated like he's assigned these feasts, and he gives these detailed instructions for how the feasts are done. This feast is seven days long. This feast is a one-day feast. Okay, delete the word feast and change it to party, okay? So here are five parties that you're going to have through the year on a structured rhythm. And I say party because it's all about food and celebration and remembering. And we've kind of 
made them super holy and robbed the joy out of them. But this is celebration. This one, for seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place your God will choose. For the Lord will bless you in all your harvest and all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. So God's going to give you an abundant harvest. So get together and eat it and enjoy it. You're going to give part of it to him. <laughs> um, and part of this is just, at the end of the day, it's just enjoying the good things that God has given us. Is celebration. It's enjoying the creation that we get to walk in. It's enjoying our family and our friends. Proverbs says, like, the, the smell of sweet perfume brings joy to your heart. Like, so there are things that God's given us in this world that just bring joy. And the thing that brings me joy is probably not the thing that brings you joy. Like, Greek words bring me joy. And I'm sure that's not the case for you. Um, singing and music. Um, Proverbs talks about when your children walk in wisdom, it brings joy. Um, so there are all these things, just common grace that exist in the world that are intended to be sources of joy. So we have to celebrate together and celebrate the things that he's given us. Um, that leads us to number five. Gratitude is a source of joy. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. We're talking about Emmanuel, God with us, God's presence. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Gratitude is a key discipline. And I would argue it's probably the primary discipline we as the church need to cultivate today. As I look at the, the, the media and the world round about me, I see so much negativity. Um, marketing exists to make us dissatisfied. It, it, it points out a need that we didn't know we had so that we'll buy something that we didn't know we needed. <laughs> um, it makes us dissatisfied with the things that we have so that we'll go out and purchase a product that we don't really need. Um, and, and, and cancel culture, Let, let's tear people down, celebrity gossip, who's breaking up this time, who's hurting who this time, and then you look at the news, no one picks up a newspaper to be happy, right? You pick up a newspaper knowing that it's going to be doom and gloom, you don't turn on the news channel, like getting the popcorn ready for like a good joy filler. It's like, oh, what's going on this time? There's a couple of good things scattered in there, but, but so much of the world focuses on negativity. It focuses on being dissatisfied. Cultivating the discipline of gratitude would mark us so different to the world around about us. Um, and it's part of joy. Rather than being dissatisfied with what we don't have, um, are upset at how I'm not like this person. What if we cultivated the gratitude for what we have, uh, for who we are, for what we've been given, uh, and how that then impacts the joy that we experience in the world? Um, it, it's interesting because this passage, when it goes on uh, after the part that's up here, you know, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. It's about getting our mind on the right thing um, rather than the things the world wants us focused on. So let's be people who cultivate gratitude. Number six, the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the ultimate source of joy in many senses. And the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the things that he cultivates in us as we surrender ourselves 
to him. But, but I think this is an interesting list, and I deliberately put the fruit of the flesh beforehand because the fruit of the flesh are the things in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. So if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, the list before shows you the things that will get in the way of your ability to walk in joy. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Replace witchcraft with superstition, with conspiracy, um, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These are the things that the world focuses on. Um, and and if, you, if you're looking at your life going, I want more joy and I'm struggling to have joy, I would say look at that list above it and say, what are those things that are evident in my life that I'm entertaining that are standing in the way of me experiencing the joy that God intends for me? Um, and number seven is God's presence. I mean, this series, Emmanuel, God with us, we're focusing on Jesus as he came. God's presence is the ultimate source of joy. The psalmist writes, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. It's his presence that is the source of joy. So when we come to the word to experience joy, it's because we're encountering his presence as we read his word. As we come in prayer to ask God for stuff, it's not just a magic formula that you throw into the sky to get the things that you want. It's an encounter with his presence that results in joy. Um, so we want to be a church that's marked by his presence. We want to be Christians walking in the world aware of his presence so that we can experience the joy that comes with that. So, what robs us of joy? What gets in the way of joy? It's simple. Disobedience, unforgiveness, and comparison, I would say, are the biggest joy robbers, um, the biggest obstacles. You could just label this sin. <laughs> sin gets in the way of our joy. Whenever we're walking contrary to the will of God, joy is hard. Um, unforgiveness, bitterness is one of the biggest things that gives your ability to have joy to someone else. Um, you've probably heard this quote before, but I heard this, I don't know how many hundreds of years ago it feels like, but um, someone said, bitterness is like drinking a vial of poison and then waiting for the other person to, to die. Bitterness is like drinking a vial of poison and waiting for the other person to die. Um, unforgiveness, it's, it's, it's something that's happening in us um, that is just killing us from the inside out. So forgiveness becomes a key part of walking forward in joy. And then the comparison game. And this is where like media is so difficult. Beautiful actors and actresses that you watch on TV and go, I don't look as good as them. The, the nice clothes, the, the hip fashion, the house, the car, the job, all of those ways that we look at other people and we compare and contrast their faith to mine and it sows dissatisfaction and ingratitude that gets in the way of our ability to experience joy. Earlier in Luke's gospel, there's this amazing encounter that Mary has with the angel where he tells her, you're gonna have this child uh, you're going to bear the, the, the Son of God. And, and Mary bursts in this song that we call the Magnificat. And the beginning of the song says, my soul will magnify the Lord. This beautiful Mary's posture walking in the world is my soul will magnify the Lord. The posture we tend to find ourselves in is magnifying our mistakes, magnifying our problems, magnifying our failures, magnifying our fears, 
magnifying other people's problems. Uh, we magnify the negative rather than magnifying the one who solves all those problems. Uh, and so we need a, a reorientation to stop magnifying the things that are broken and to magnify the Lord and the impact that he wants to have on us. So how do we as a church move forward? What can we do uh, to become more joy-filled? So whenever there's a how do I do this in scripture, it's always twofold. You put off the old and you put on the new. There's always some things to shed and then some things to adopt. So, so th the first thing like, is the shedding. Rid yourself of joy destroyers. Like there are things in your life that destroy joy and you know what they are. If you're one of those people, you get out your app, you get out the newspaper, you switch on the TV and you watch the news and the news gets done and you turn to someone and you're just like, Bleh. I hate the world, I hate our government, I hate our country, I hate what's happening, I hate the climate, I hate the pandemic. And you just, you know, you're just in that horrible place. Stop reading the news, right? It's destroying your joy, so just stop. The difficulty is we have cultivated a habit of coming to the news for information, and we're actually addicted to the sense of frustration at what we're seeing on the TV. If you use social media and, and, and you, you come off of social media and you're unsatisfied with what you have, you feel jealous of what someone else has, you feel ashamed of your appearance, you feel like you don't match up or line up or aren't good enough, quit using social media. Delete the app from your phone. Set time limits. Um, we've cultivated the habit of engaging that stuff and allowing it to impact our attitude. Um, if being around a certain person is difficult for you and you find your joy drained by being around them, set boundaries. You don't have to give them all the time. You don't have to give them all the permissions that they have to, to do the things that, that cause you so much pain. And, and we're not always good at setting good boundaries. The boundaries are there to protect the relationship so that we can then work on the issues that need to be worked on so that we can move forward in a more healthy way. So this is not, and so <laughs> set boundaries. I'm like, get those people out of your life, but, but not your spouse, right? And not your kids. Like, <laughs> you can't just like, I'm just gonna rid myself, rid myself of the joy destroyers. My spouse is one of those. So let's just rid ourselves of that. No, we can set boundaries in a relationship. Like I'm not, you can't speak that way. Like, those things that you're doing are not okay. Um, and we need those things out of the way so that we can work on a healthy relationship. We can set boundaries that, that stop these things uh, removing our joy. So you know the things in your life that you engage in that, that leave you discouraged and down. We can move those things out of the way. Um, and it's amazing how hard that can be because it's a habit that we need to break. Um, and so what's the positive? The positive is choose joy. Fix your eyes on Jesus and choose joy. Very quickly, five practices you can try this week and through the rest of Advent to choose joy. Number one is be present. You can dwell on the past, but the past is gone and it can't be changed. You can dream about the future, but it doesn't exist. So the only thing that exists is right now. And so if you want the presence of God, it's not found in your past. And it's not over in the future. It's right here, right now. Um, so joy will be found in the present. Practice gratitude. Start listing things that you're grateful for. As you're writing Christmas cards to people, think of things you're grateful about those people and, and share it. And bless others. It's 
better to give than to receive. So what are the ways that you can bless people serving? Like what we're doing with supporting the families through uh, City View Charter School is, is a way that we bless others and encounter joy. Um, four, have fun. Like celebrate Christmas. Uh, have a party <laughs> with people that you care about and celebrate. Crack jokes. Have a good time. And then, and then lastly, make a sacrifice of praise because I know this is a hard time for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of grief and loss uh, that, that comes into the focus around Christmas. There's a lot of hardship that we're facing in the world right now. Many people's Christmas doesn't look the way they want it to. So this is an opportunity to offer a sacrifice of praise. God, I don't feel like praising you. I don't feel like celebrating, but I'm going to do it anyway and watch how he turns your sorrow into joy. Um, so I'm going to pray um, and Kerry's going to come up and, and lead us through communion and then we'll, we'll close with the song. God, I thank you that you're a God of joy. I thank you that you're a God of fun and, and that you love us to celebrate and, and Advent. I mean, it's supposed to be a season of celebration. We can make it so somber, but it's a season of remembering the work that you've done and anticipating what you're going to do. God, thank you a day is coming where you're going to return um, and everything will be put right. There'll be no sorrow, no fear, no sadness, just joy as we encounter you completely unhindered. Um, God, thank you for this church. Thank you for the building that we get to meet in. Thank you for our partnership with City View Charter School. Thank you for the basketball crew that comes in here and ministers to youth through Sports Outreach Northwest. Thank you for the people who serve, for Dave as he leads, for Gene and Eric as they, they do sound, for Maggie and, and uh, Sandy as they set up Team Coffee. God, just thank you for the gifts that you give us. Thank you for the people that are in this church, for what they've done and for what they continue to do. Lord, would you fill us with joy as we celebrate you this Christmas. Amen.